So Luke 6, 29. We've got a few passages of Scripture tonight that we're going to look at. Luke chapter 6. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one takes away your cloak, and do not withhold your tunic either. We'll read kind of in context. We'll go to verse 24. Jesus promotes, pronounces woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And then he goes on to say that to the one that strikes, uh, turn the other cheek. So part of that portion of kind of what we're looking at is the turning the other cheek principle. And uh, so I'll leave, leave it over with you first, as far as what does it mean to turn the other cheek? What, uh, what do we, we've heard that phrase, I'm sure, growing up. Someone uh, creates an offense to you and first thing we kind of draw our minds to is, well, turn the other cheek. What do you think? What would be some of the things that uh, this verse could possibly mean? Your answer nicely instead of nasty in the same way they are, but reply nice. Okay, good. A return nicely to even a harsh thing that's been said. I think our automatic response is to retaliate. If someone strikes you on your cheek, your automatic, my automatic response would probably be to be hit them back. But that's not, we're not to retaliate, so we're supposed to turn the other cheek and accept, accept what they did done to you and, and not retaliate. Okay, principle of non-retaliation would definitely have a piece of that. I've learned to, to be quiet and not say something too quickly that I'll regret. And if I have time to think about it and calm myself down, that seems to help keep my mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. A quiet answer turns away wrath, Proverbs says. Did you know that there are two places in Scripture where Jesus tells us to do this? So the first one, the first occurrence is in the book of Matthew. And you will read these words, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him with the other also. The second occurrence is the one we read from Luke 6.29. And if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. So what do these verses mean? Both for Jesus's Biblical audience is what we would want to look at first and also for us today. What does turn the other cheek mean? At first glance, we might think that this verse teaches that no matter what somebody does, we are to look the other way. We're to turn away from whatever uh, has been happening. We are not to take any actions against our aggressors. 
right? Could be another way of uh, looking at this. There's no retali- you know, no action back. This could not be further from the truth. This verse is not saying that we are to let people do whatever they want, but rather it's saying we have to allow for the principle of God handling the situation, right? So uh, the failure is in thinking that no matter what someone does to us, we are not to stand up or we're not to respond or we're not to do any action whatsoever. That's the danger of the verse in saying, oh, well, see, in all situations, in all circumstances, I do not respond. It's not saying do not respond. If you look deeper into it, as Christians, we in situations are to respond in certain ways. In fact, even Jesus was struck in the face. If you looked at John 18, an official struck Jesus, the high priest. Did Jesus respond? You know, he did actually respond. Uh, But his response is a very good principle for us. He did respond to him. He told him the truth. He stated, what you are doing is wrong. Why would you do this? Paul was approached and he did the same thing. And his response back to the officials is, you know, what you are doing is wrong. Paul was slapped in the face uh, as a response. And the response was actually uh, not lawful because they didn't realize that he was a Jew. And they slapped him in the face in what would be considered a, a legal form. And Paul's like, hey, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I'm a Jew. You've actually just done an un, a, a, a legal thing that's wrong, right? And so he did respond. So it's not saying necessarily the response. It's how we respond, right, in the proper and appropriate way, what we need to respond to. What is our tendency? You use the word, I think, Matt, to retaliate. We want retribution. We want something to happen uh, back in a response to what's happened to us. And that is where we would cross the wrong line. Who takes action against the sin of others? God. We place that at his feet for him to deal with and him to do what he wants to do as he will be the judge. All right. So we're not to judge in that sense. We're not to look at retaliation uh, for uh, something that's been done to us in that way. John MacArthur adds that Jesus demonstrated the proper response by being unjustly humiliated, humiliated during his trial before the high priest when one of the officials struck him. He did not turn his head and ask to be struck again, but neither did he lash out in anger or uh, revenge at his mistreatment. Instead, he calmly pointed out the injustice of the act To turn the other cheek is, like Jesus did, to accept hostility and ill treatment without hatred or retaliation, but to show love in return. And obviously, Jesus, even the greatest way of demonstrating this on the cross, forgive them for they do not know what they do. His love is what uh, motivated him uh, in all these areas, but he did do an action, right? The command, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also does not preclude the self-defense mechanisms that God has provided for our self-preservation. Jesus 
was not forbidding his followers to defend themselves. Jesus demonstrated the proper response to being unjustly humiliated uh, during his trial. One of the officers struck him, and he did not turn and ask to be struck again, but neither did he lash out. So to turn the other cheek, like Jesus did, is to accept the hostile treatment uh, without hatred or retaliation. All right, that's what we're looking at doing. Yes, Jim. Oh, sorry. Does that only apply to personal, or can it apply to nations? Like I'm thinking of Israel and Palestine. Israel's turned the other cheek so many times, and they're not doing it now. Enough's enough. Interesting question. So does that apply only to individuals, or does that apply to nations? In context, he's speaking to the people of Israel, to the crowd uh, before him. Uh, so I do believe he's speaking personally, individually at this point, uh, but I don't know that the precedent isn't there uh, for any nation to defend itself. All right? We know that there is biblical precedent for that. You know, you defend yourself, you defend your, your uh, people that live in your country and you're bound, so you're not going to let someone just walk all over you, for sure. Uh, so the other good rollout to this is, you also consider the fact this is looking at us and maybe what's done to us, but it also kind of in a sense says, oh, hey, look at my brother here as well, maybe mistreated, how do I respond when someone else is being mistreated? Right? And again, the principle is the same. I'm not looking to retaliate. I'm not looking to for vengeance or in hatred, but I'm looking to respond truthfully, honestly, and for the best interest of the individual. Any other thoughts, questions? I would, um, I would interpret this as Jesus talking to his followers. And, um, and that makes a huge difference. Um, in Jim's question about nations, people are put into leadership for, for reason, for purpose, and a responsibility that they, uh, they lead that country or they mm-hmm. lead their people. Um, but as followers of Jesus Christ, that makes all the difference in the world as to how we respond and and what the outcome would be. And yes, it, we, uh, we trust that God will deal uh, with the, the wrongs. And we put that in his hands. Mm-hmm. You also, just one other note, is you also recognize that in context... Jesus is pronouncing woes upon people, right, for certain things, and then brings us to this context. Uh, So the other way to kind of understand this is it probably was directed at his disciples in that you will be persecuted, right? So be prepared, be ready, uh, and this is how to deal with those situations and circumstances. But the bottom line is the tendency we have is to retaliate, to want to see uh, 
justice done, and we are not to take that into our own hands. I've always kind of, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said. I don't disagree with anything, but I just always saw this as a supernatural work of God because in our flesh, um, we don't have easily the ability to go the extra mile and do, uh, to extend more, um, like the other cheek or our coat also, because we, we can maybe deal with the action and leave it up to God, but if we are to go the next mile, that needs supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not something that's just within ourselves, in our flesh. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily just apply to Christians, does it? Because what I'm thinking of... Well, I think the principle is good, but... The massacre, when they came in and slaughtered kids and whatever they did to everybody else, how would you ever be able to stand there and not do something? You know, I think that would be terribly hard. Yes. So a danger, if I was to say, I'm going to stand on this verse alone out of context, but just as this verse, what danger zones could you fall into, right? Well, you're not going to stand there idly by. I'm not going to stand there idly by as someone breaks into my home and wants to hurt my family. I'm not going to, it's not, that's not where you draw the principle of here to turn the other cheek, right? Um, It really is against somebody um, doing you harm And I think I would bank more on the fact that for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, that this is where we're finding the principle playing out, that we are to take this. Matthew even uh, tells us that we are to uh, feed our enemies. We're to look, you know, to to do something to love them, right, when they do things against us. So those kind of things, at the same time, we're not going to, stand by and let just things happen that are wrong, we're going to stand up for justice that way too, because that's the principle God has for us to do. But to take into our own hands the thing that God only should be doing in, in his justice of the action is, and looking for vengeance is, is not where we're to go as Christians. All right? it, it's the desire, and I believe that you're right in that it's supernatural something that only the Spirit can do within us to help us through that. And uh, sometimes that's a testimony, right? To uh, turn the other cheek definitely is something where you kind of look at it as somebody who's continuing to do something against you or said something about you at work, right? I didn't take action in the sense of trying to stand up in the sense of that. Maybe I'll speak the truth, but I'm not going to try to get back at that person. Um, And then God uses your testimony as how you respond to those things as well. So I think it's not an easy black and white scenario. Uh, It's something we look at Scripture overall, right? And we say, well, how does God give us principles to live by uh, that relate to the situation? Isn't it, isn't it good that 
God only gives us so much authority on things. I'm thinking of James and John, and they say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? And, uh, and Jesus saying, I could call legions of angels to come down. Uh, we can't do that. <laughs> and, and it's maybe a really good thing that we can't do that. Mark eleven twenty two. Another one that can create kind of a confusion for us, or could in fact lead us down a path where we could find some disappointment if we read this in the wrong understanding. So, Mark chapter eleven. Twenty-two to twenty-four, and Jesus answered them, "Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him." See any danger? Right, what, what's the possibility of here? Because there's a few things that you could kind of go down a wrong path on your understanding on. Well, at first glance, it appears that Jesus states that everything that we ask for in faith will happen. Right? According to just the verse, uh, as an island unto itself, uh, you would look at the verse and the danger could be, I could assume, well, if I, as long as I have enough faith and everything I ask for then should take place, it should happen. There are teachers and preachers who have made this claim on the basis of this verse that we just have to name it and claim it and that if we truly believe, God will grant our requests, right? Conversely, if not, right, uh, if God is not granting our requests, well, then what's the default response from them? Then you didn't have enough faith, right? So if you have enough faith, these things will take place. If they're not taking place, then you don't have enough faith in order, in order to get those things. Your faith is lacking. What if I cha- uh, find challenging about the verse is that there are things that we pray for Right? There are things that there's really no doubt about that God can do it, but we don't see them happen. So where's my faith left if I've banked it on a verse uh, like this? Right? Where does that leave me? And it leaves me either discouraged or disappointed uh, right? in, in God or myself. Does this experience mean that I lack faith? Uh, I do not believe that the people that struggle with this are alone. I think many people can struggle through understanding this verse. So in the broader context, whenever we uh, come across a challenging verse, we've got to ex- you know, examine both the immediate context and the wider context of the verse. Uh, Jesus has just gone by and withered the fig tree. 
So as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. If you recall earlier on in Mark, Jesus, uh, it said in verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing the distance of fig fig tree and leaf. He went to uh, to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not in season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. And there's context surrounding all of this that's taken place. And now he's got this fig tree that they're passing by again. They've seen that it's withering. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered to him. So this is the context in which he's answering and he's replying back to him that uh, this is what's happening. Some have viewed a number of details in the immediate context as pointing to a kind of a different explanation of saying that in particular, some have drawn that the location that Jesus is saying these words is probably this mountain referring to Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives. And so some have said, well, this is just a prediction of what's going to take place as you saw in Zechariah chapter 14, 1 to 5, where it says that the mountain, uh, Mount of Olives actually, will split in two. And therefore the moving mountain prayer is kind of a prayer of God's kingdom to come in its fullness. And when you pray that way, the day of the Lord will come quicker. That's one interpretation of that. I don't believe it's plausible, but that's some that have taken it this way, especially because Zechariah 14 in the preceding account of Jesus' action in the temple, was referring to what took place there and explaining uh, the solution to challenging Jesus this way and asking for faith that God will give it to us. First, Jesus moves from the specific requests to everything, expanding uh, the same beyond this particular mountain. So he's also referring to the fact that you ask anything, so not only this mountain to move, but then anything that you ask. So there's some, it's problematic in just referring to the fact that this is a reference to Zechariah because there are more things happening in here that uh, are beyond just that coming to pass, All right, both in uh, that way and also in the promise of Matthew and Luke, who record Jesus speaking similar about a mountain location, uh, but it was concerning a mulberry tree, and so it wasn't referring to the Zechariah. So if you look at the context and the immediate and the broader, uh, it offers us some clues and insights. First and foremost, we see in Mark 11 that this is a call for faith in prayer, and it's connected to forgiving others. So the prayer connected to forgiving others is what's connected to this prayer here. And uh, also comes after Jesus has rebuked people for false and presumptuous worship in the temple. That is, they're returning the house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so there are some additional uh, conditions attached to this statement. Faith is not just believing, but it's also obeying and not presuming upon God. Problem with that, however, leads us into if I feel that I'm praying something and believing God and it doesn't come about, then where am I set back to? Then I'm not obedient enough in order to gain that. 
prayer, right? And so if I don't have faith enough or I'm not obedient enough, leads me into a challenge on this. So what is the point being made here? What is Jesus really trying to say as far as mountain-moving faith? Well, number one, God can do anything, right? We know that. We trust that God can move a mountain if that's what he so desired. So in in one sense, God's wanting mountain-moving prayer on our part. He wants us to pray in faith, believing. But prayer in faith isn't a blank check to God. It's not also something we say, well, this is what I want to see happen, and so God must do what I see or what I want or what I desire, right? It's not as long as my faith is strong enough even because Jesus said that my faith can be as small as a mustard seed, right? And so it's, it's an interesting concept. I think God wants us to have bold requests to him, but an understanding that in a bold request of prayer, in faith, God may choose not to move that mountain. Even though it's, it says here that he will move it, there are times we know we pray and God doesn't move the mountain. He just chooses not to. right? What's, what's then the underlying principle? What do I need to find out here? Well, first of all, Steve Lawson says on faith, that faith here is an imperative faith. It's a divine command that we're to have it. So I have to have the faith. I have to believe that God can do this. But I also have to look at, as he says, the object of the faith. And it's not faith in faith. Right? I don't have faith in the faith itself. That's not the object. I have the faith in the object of the Lord, right? It's not positive thinking that moves a mountain. It's the object that I'm praying to, the person that I'm praying to. The exclusivity of faith, that this is all that Jesus required of them? Well, no, there's salvation, sanctification, uh, but it's not faith plus anything else. It's faith in the fact that that's exclusive to uh, my salvation. The responsibility of faith, each and every person is responsible before God to exercise their own will. Parents cannot believe for their children. We have to believe our own. It's something that's personal and individual. And there's an urgency in faith right? right now. Not when you can get around to it or feel like doing it. And so Christ actually meant prayer to be a great power by which the church and individuals uh, should do its work. And the neglect of prayer, as Andrew Murray says, is the great reason the church has no greater power over the masses in Christian or heathen countries. Like our prayer needs to be with power and faith. It needs to be in the source of God. And sometimes to neglect that we don't see what God could do. Right? And so he's challenging us that we can do this. Whoever says to this mountain, but it's a hyperbole. right? It's to make a point. Mountain is a metaphor. It represents um, 
what appears impossible, what appears immovable, right? Something that's beyond our ability. That's what it's being said here. And this is where faith begins. So we, believe, we believe, have believing faith that taps God's power to accomplish his purpose. Right? Our faith is grounded somewhere, but it's also in something that we recognize this is impossible without God moving. All right? Does that kind of help try to make some sense of what we're, say, what we're seeing here? We're to have continued faith. Removing a mountain is a bigger task than a fig tree withering. And so he's pointing their attention to this. He's responding to his disciples' amazement over the fact that this tree withered at his command. Right? And so he's saying, yeah, but our, we need to have mountain-moving faith. Something that's impossible. We've got to believe God for. But in believing God for it, that faith also has to be founded on the principle that I also understand if God didn't move the mountain, there's a reason why. I just think that it has to be, like for each and every one of us, our mountains are different. And when we pray, we have to make sure for this to be effective, I think, is that we're praying in the will of God. And to do that, you have to know God. You have to know his attributes and how he is part of his plan. You know, with, not to pray against his will, because we'll never move anything that way. Mm-hmm. And the whole tension, though, is, and yet we're supposed to still continue to persistently pray for that. Right? Pray and pray. Yeah. I think, well, I think we'll come to one point. So we'll think of Paul. I mean, three times I asked for this. So he must have thought this should have been the will of God, but then recognized as he was praying through this in the response, okay, it's not. <laughs> Right. Well, so maybe he w- he will stop us at some point, whether it's triggered or whatever, right? And we'll recognize. Wait a minute. You know, his grace is sufficient, and like you said to Paul. James one twelve. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So he's echoing the thoughts that he actually started in verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. He's continuing with that theme uh, where he called upon believers to, you know, Look at our hard times as joyful things, even in the midst of those difficulties. 
Why? Because our faith only grows stronger when we're tested by trials. Right? Our, our faith really does grow in the soil of trials and difficult times in our lives. If you recognize those things from your life, you realize that, oh, I see how God used that to help me to, to grow in some way or form or character. Uh, so trusting God through our trials pushes us forward uh, to the Christ-like maturity of trusting God more and more and more deeply uh, with greater endurance. And uh, I think that's going to be the key word through this passage is the fact that we're enduring through uh, situations. That choice to keep trusting God in the midst of those trials is where we find the blessing that comes uh, at the end of those things. So whether it's through those things or at the end of those things. Um, so some people can take it this way, right? That we're going to receive this blessing. So I'm going to be blessed now. Or maybe I'm blessed in the future. Or maybe I'm blessed in eternity. I think it's all three. right? I think there's a possibility of receiving kind of those um, blessings that come from working out those things or working through those things and the endurance. I believe that God at times blesses, you know, down the line as you see him work. And then the crown of life, I believe that's pictured here, is ultimately the crown of life that we look at for the future of what God has promised, especially in Revelation. Uh, one, I think, picture of this is it's like a, there's a crown of gold. It is a crown of life. Right, that's the um, the usage that's used here. It's a crown of life, uh, in the same way that crowns are gold. In the case that the reward for perseverance is not necessarily an improved situation, right? It doesn't guarantee that our situations will change or improve, uh, but that we will be blessed through the perseverance of these situations. Uh, that we are going through in our lives. Perseverance is also illustrated in nature, right? We have the Yoda's mighty oak. You know, the Yoda's mighty oak is yesterday's little nut that held its ground, right? Well, it persevered, right? It became this mighty oak, but it first started as a tree. Now, we know God gives a life. I know this is just a, a, a raw analogy. Uh, there's another example that even though the woodpecker owns his success to the fact that he uses his head and keeps pecking away until he finishes the job that he starts, right? Those are perseverance things. Great works are performed not by strength, but by perseverance. Right? Though Christians be not kept altogether from failing, yet they are kept from failing altogether. And then a military term that this is used from is like a military's army holding a vital position at all costs. So even hardships, even the suffering that it might entail, uh, they endured through holding fast to that position. Right, And that's the kind of the... the uh, term that he's using here. You hold fast. You hold on to the Lord through these situations. You endure through uh, even though these may be difficult times to hold through. 
right? You're, you're holding on uh, to the Lord. So Christian endurance, is a, it's a Christian value, right? We want to, we endure. We lean on the truth of God and what he, his truth for us. And it leads us into a deeper life with the Lord, a deeper walk with the Lord, sometimes a more fruitful life and ministry with him, um, you know, in that sense that it's holding on to, to the Lord through those difficult times where that's what the endurance is. It's not just holding fast to my own strength. It's not holding fast to my own understanding, right? It's holding fast to what God promises, similar to what we looked at this morning, what he has said and who he is. So you talk about the character and nature of the Lord. Well, to understand that more and more of who he is helps me to hold fast stronger and, and, and better as we endure through. I'm not really understanding, Ben. What is the, what is the problem with this verse? I don't see any... Um, is it still that some people just say, oh, it's now is your crown and... Life, life will get better now. In the, the situations will turn around if I, if I endure through. But the situations don't always turn around, so what does that leave us? Well, then that wasn't correct, uh, right? It wasn't right uh, thinking. That, I just don't get how they could think that. <laughs> and that probably is a good thing. Exactly. So you've got a good handle on what this passage is talking about, for sure. What sometimes the blessed can be interpreted in the wrong what that means, and that is most often people believe that their situation and circumstance can change, right? So I'm blessed because well, we'll see what God did as I endured. Or I went through this trial. Um, we had a gentleman who would share uh, with me that he believed he knew that God was blessing him because things always turned out. Right? And he would even refer to this verse. <laughs> See, I'm blessed because... When I look at these situations, for me, they've worked out, right? Whether it was to buy a car that I was thinking of buying or do this. He had a whole bunch of different scenarios, and I had to try to help him understand, well, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily uh, give us the foundation that you have taken with what, what that means, right? So the next time, if something doesn't go the way you just thought it was supposed to go, does that mean that verse has failed? Right? So, you've got a good understanding. This is, we're not talking about circumstances of blessing that turn around in what I think they should turn around to be. Right? And we do, we wrestle with that though, right? Like, if we are struggling with a finance or we're struggling with health or we're struggling in a certain situation, 
and we are trying to, you know, trust God or to get through the situation. I think for us, we sometimes do think, oh, I hope it turns around, you know, it, it comes out to be okay. And that, you know, I see, and people have said, right, oh, God blessed me. Because you saw, a, you know, something come about, then we kind of jump to that, well, then that's the blessing. But that's not necessarily what is saying here, right? The blessing is ultimately the crown of life. It's the end game that we will receive. We may receive indications of God's blessing uh, uh, in our lives, and as we pray for people, uh, we want to do that, right? We say, oh, it's uh, God answered prayer. Yes, God answered prayer. That was a blessing in one sense uh, of that, but ultimately it's the crown of life that we will receive at the end that God has for us. So my situation may or may not change because I'm enduring through the trial. So does that kind of make sense on what some people may struggle with on this? And praise the Lord if you don't. Todd, I wonder if the other side of that coin is there are people who, who feel that... Uh, they do bring troubles and trials upon themselves. And then when the troubles and trials come, they see that as I'm, I'm, I'm being faithful to the Lord. And it's self-imposed or it's just that they're obnoxious about certain things. And then troubles come and kind of, oh, I'm in, I'm in God's favor because blessed is he who, who endures such troubles. Mm. Yeah. We've seen that uh, in people's lives as well, for sure. All right. Well, Lord, I just pray as we go from here. Thank you for the truth of your word. And there are areas in which sometimes we can impose our own thinking. And we want to kind of have a clearer understanding from the context and from uh, your word, uh, the principles that we're to live by with the things that we see and uh, the, to have an understanding. And, and it's easy sometimes to fall into these traps of um, looking at something from our human vantage point or looking at something from our situation and circumstance. Maybe sometimes we look at things uh, from uh, just our fleshly desire and uh, Lord, we don't want to get caught in those traps because they can lead us uh, down dangerous paths of, of uh, disappointment and discouragement or even failure. And so I just pray, God, that you would just remind us of the importance it is to have a, a good firm foundation in your word, a good clear understanding of your character and your nature and who you are, Lord. And we continue to learn these things. Thank you that we will probably spend eternity learning more and more about your character, your nature, and who you are. And uh, we look forward to, to learning and uh, discovering more and more of those truths uh, throughout eternity. And Lord, we do want to be faithful to your word here on earth, and we want to be faithful to act in obedience, and we want to be faithful in our faith. We want to to live by faith. We want to have um, a faith that really does see that you can do the impossible. 
that you can move mountains, that uh, things that just don't seem like uh, humanly they could be done, and yet we recognize that you are the Almighty God, the most powerful, and that if it's uh, in your will and for your glory, Lord, that these things can be accomplished. And we need to step out sometimes. We need to act in faith. We need to believe. And we need to be sometimes even persistent. And yet we recognize, God, that in things that you've chosen not to act in, we recognize it is for our good many times. It's for your glory that those things uh, do not happen. And it's for your purposes. So we thank you again for tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.